Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Chief Information Security Officer. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you. And Bill Rucker, President of Trustway of Government Solutions. Bill, welcome to the program as well. Thank you, Jason. We're going to talk about cybersecurity today, but we're also going to talk about Security Operations Center. Agencies obviously had a big deadline back in September when they had some plans due to OMB, but it's more than just those plans. It's really the evolution of SOX and NOX and, and all the good acronyms we can apply to cybersecurity these days. Kevin, let me start with you. When it comes to Oak Ridge National Lab and being the CISO there, let's talk a little bit about your current approach to cybersecurity and where does the Security Operations Center currently fit into that approach? Here at the lab, we have a, a unique mission in the sense of our job is to protect information in a totally open and shared environment, being a research facility for the Department of Energy. So our SOC has to look at things from a, a different perspective in the sense of that we have communications with other countries where maybe a bank or someone may not. So it's a lot different when we have to look at what's going on, behavior, um, our team has to be more tuned to what's the norm and what's not the norm. I mean, we also send out large data sets because we have the world's fastest supercomputer, you know, so we're doing a lot of exchange. So it's very unique here. And when we rely on the, our SOC, our Security Operations Center, to sort of know what's going on, being able to ingest tons of data and come up with some sort of level of intelligence. Yeah, we need to worry about this or not. I'm sure we'll talk about the data piece in a little bit, but give me a sense, has the Security Operations Center, and generally speaking, become more vital to your approach to cybersecurity? Has it been playing a bigger role? Have you seen the, this evolution, or has it always played the big role in, in you know, the, the three Vs of data, right? Velocity, veracity, and volume. It's actually matured a lot from the standard days of watching for people doing things they shouldn't to actually looking at the data, you know, what's an, what's an anomalous behavior, knowing our patterns of behavior as much as i'd love it to be 24 7 in reality most most of us in the department of energy our socks are eight to five and then we we rely on automated processes after you know standard business hours to keep us alert of what's going on and you know things that are not supposed to be happening is there a reason why it's the more standard business hours versus the 24 by 7? I mean, is it a staffing issue? Is it a technology issue? Meaning not that you don't have the right technology or enough technology, but give me a sense because that's maybe a little surprising from my perspective. It's because of staffing money and things like that. Um, obviously, you have people in and out, and we stagger our, our, our team, but there's no one here 24-7. So they're watching during primary business hours what's going on. And then after hours, we turn it over to our data operations center to watch for other things that you know, we've trained them on. So I wouldn't really call them SOC analysts. So I say, I say it in that context. So I guess saying we're not 24-7 is probably not fair. I would say my experts are a standard business weekday type thing, but then we have other people who are trained to watch for really bad things to happen. And they can say, okay, this is bad or that's bad. And of course, we have people on call 24-7. So they watch what's going on as well as our data center people who are 24-7. I think that helps kind of add some clarity to it only because, you know, I think somebody would listen and be like, what? But uh, yeah, I think I think it's a 
better point that you make that it's not that close down and lock the door and walk away at 5 p.m. every day. It's just a matter of, of, of how the analysts and, and, and things are put together. Uh, let me bring in Bill from TrustWave Solutions. Bill, one of the things that we heard Kevin talk a little bit about is this kind of evolution that's been happening. What do you see from your customers across the government, but also maybe even add the, the private sector? The evolution of, of the SOC has been pretty dramatic, right? I, I've been able to watch this closely. Um, you know, 19 years ago, I was talking with government leaders about, you know, the, the very beginning of SIM. That was the new wave in SOC modernization at the time, which you know, stood for security information and event management, which really evolved into the log management, if you will, right, to include anything that could could talk or send a message. And, you know, the original focus was on security devices. And then as the, you know, the landscape changed and people were looking for malicious insiders and those type of things evolved, it became anything that could talk, a badge reader at a door, right? If if there was a, a login attempt by by Fred, but Fred had not yet badged into the building, right? That created this new generation of anomalies and kind of threat factors. And it was really all about having access to all these mountains of data. And it was more from the mindset of finding out what had happened. Now you add this complexity that, you know, agencies have all these new environments, right? And start talking about clouds, not only one cloud, but multiple clouds and hybrid environments. And, and they've acquired, you know, numerous security tools over these periods of times that don't always integrate well and have different missions in different layers from a defense and depth approach. So now you have pockets of data all over, you know, the big discussion that we hear a lot is these data lakes. Well, you know, I have systems that talk about, well, the lakes are, are big and I know where those are, but it's the puddles of data that are stored all over my environment in, in every possible manner. So you take all that complexity and then you layer on the increased frequency of, of the threats from adversaries and, and the attacks that aren't only just the normal stuff that's out there on the web that are the ones that are specifically purpose-built for a government entity and targeted towards them to do harm, it forces these SOCs to now be on alert, uh, or high alert, if you will, at all time. So the evolution that I've really seen is, is transpired from getting information to find out what happened into visibility, if you will, into what's happening in real time, and then what proactive measures can we do on a daily basis to make sure that those IOCs and those type of threats are actually seen, right? So is, is that a proactive threat hunt? Is that automation around certain tools that can minimize uh, a potential attack's uh, impact, right? Or maybe even eradicate it altogether before any harm is done to the agency or the network. And, and that's really where we've seen the driving into this managed threat detection and response or the offerings as, as many people call MTDR. And it's really just about finding and eliminating those threats as quick as possible. and then giving that SOC or that operator as much actionable intelligence in parallel as you possibly can, because that data is no longer just about the SOC, right? I mean, Kevin talks about like what his people have to be able to do and deal with. I mean, it's also the other researchers and your business partners and potentially even your supply chain. So it's bigger than just you now, because the SOC is basically extended beyond your walls in, in many cases. So I think agencies, you know, really have to try to reduce that complexity and, and try to get consolidation, better visibility. And with that comes the need for single panes of glass and, and platforms that allow all these things to communicate together. Uh, that's really the end goal, right, of these SOC journeys is to become more efficient and, and knock that threat down faster in a more efficient way. So that's really the evolution pieces that, that I've seen at this stage. 
All right, a lot to unpack there. You went through a ton of different pieces and parts. Let, let me start with the, the, the threats. And, and it's interesting you say that you know, a lot of agencies see these targeted threats. The SOCs seem to be on high alert all the time. And maybe that's, I don't want to say new to me, but it's an interesting kind of point of view. When you say there, there are some targeted threats at government, is there maybe a, an example or something that comes to mind that says, hey, this is, you know, this is something we see only against public sector versus private sector? I thought, you know, any good attack is a good attack. So that's a valid point, right? So there's there's a lot of different attacks that have been out there for a while. And, and candidly, depending on the maturity of the environment and how often they patch or, or look for vulnerabilities, they, they could be vulnerable or, or suspect to an attack that's existed for days, months, even even years, right? If the wrong system was was put online or accessible. Really, it's more focus from the, the adversaries that want a specific thing, right? It's a, it's a, they're coming after specific data, specific PII, uh, information about specific users that they may use in a different way uh, at a different time. And so those attacks may be targeted through a direct access to a government employee, whether that's through a social media or a LinkedIn or can we just a phishing email directly to them. And and sometimes those things do bypass the the controls and investments of security tools that even the best CISOs and, and SOCs have put in place. I mean, that's the whole part of the threat detection and incident response life cycle, right? It's people know that those life cycles exist because these threats become um, much more sophisticated. We had a recent discovery, yes, for a specific example in the GovCon space, not specific to a, a, a government agency, but very much related because now through supply chain and many networks touching each other, they hold even uh, the partners and industry players like ourselves at, at a higher level of uh, accountability. There's a, a story out called Golden Spy, and, and you'll see that there was a, a very uh, sophisticated piece of malware that was embedded into banking software that a GovCon partner uh, was forced to install to do business uh, in, in a foreign country. Uh, and they have locations in that country and in the U.S. and others. Um, what looked like normal traffic um, to their eye and their IT and their SOC was not. It was very malicious uh, and gave full access and remote command and control to a, to an adversary uh, and had a advanced threat hunter from an organization not looked into that further, they would have never known that that wasn't just normal software that a third-party partner required them to put in. So I, the threat, you know, that's, that's where sometimes I, I make the comment of, the level of trust has changed even, right? That was supposed to be a partner in a, in, a, uh, in a CAC software with a banking institution that you were required to work with to be you know, operating in that country. And even that included a malicious threat. That's a great example. I appreciate that you're able to kind of break that down because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, they'll just exploit the latest XYZ vulnerability or launch the zero day against everybody and see where it sticks. But that's a good one. Uh, gentlemen, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to bring Kevin back in the conversation, maybe talk a little bit more about the uh, threat surface issue that you brought up, Bill. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, the President of Trustwave Government Solutions. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, the President of Trustwave Government Solutions. Now, before break, Bill laid out some scary things. There's some malware that was being used against uh, government contractors, potentially. He says that the 
threat surface, the, the nature of threats, everything has been changing. Not necessarily new, but, but it's interesting given where we are with the pandemic and the fact is that all of a sudden we've had this surge in remote workers and that's uh, according to the people I've talked with, the CIOs and such, that the threat surface is much bigger than maybe it was previously. And then when you add the cloud to it. So Kevin, talk a little bit about what has changed for you as a CISO now that the pandemic has, there's a lot of remote working. Does does Oak Ridge National Lab have remote workers because of the type of work you do? And what's this mean for cybersecurity, whether or not, you know, how have you seen the threats change? We've seen a change in our operations and an impact because of COVID. As, as a lab and a research facility, we've always had remote users because we collaborate across, across the country and across the world. So we've always had remote access, but it's always been small. As a benefit of COVID, you know, our footprint for remote went from about a couple hundred to a thousand to over three to four thousand in the matter of days. So while we had the infrastructure in place, it wasn't robust enough to, to jump that quick, but it didn't impact us that much because we were ready for it, seeing it coming down, and we had a lot of things already in place. We just had to increase the volume tuning. Uh, the, the biggest impact we saw, for, especially from a cybersecurity point of view in the SOC, is that uh, we had been measuring and monitoring our behaviors of our staff based on they're in the office. They come to work, they log on at eight o'clock in the morning, they do their stuff, they log off at five. Occasionally you might see them log in at night. Well, because of COVID in Mar- and in March, you know, that signature and baseline we had was gone. So we had to re-baseline everything. Our people were logging in from all over the country. You know, that they were, of course, people here in Tennessee, you know, stayed in Tennessee, but you know, a lot more people were like, well, you know, I'm going to go back home or whatever and work from there. So we had people all over the country logging in. And what more so was surprising more so is it wasn't eight to five anymore. People had the flexibility to do things during the day. So we saw people logging in at four o'clock in the morning that you never saw during pre-COVID days. So they were working at 12 o'clock at night, you know, things like that. So our behavior-based analysis was gone. So we had to re-baseline the entire footprint and uh, our signatures and the way we looked at things. So a major impact and we total recalibration of our, our threat and risk environment and the impact it had. You know, so it was quite dramatic in that respect, but I think the team stepped up quite nicely in the response and building it and collecting data and we collect a lot of data, data, and Bill talked about the data lakes, and some people refer to them as data swamps because they collect everything under the sun. So we had, we started collecting a lot more than we normally do, so we had to find specific needles in a stack of needles. You know, it's no longer that needle in the haystack. It was looking for the specific needles in a pile of needles. We came out, I would say, pretty well ahead of the game on that from that respect. And a lot of people, we still use MFA on site, but, you know, we had to give people laptops and give them, you know, get them set up with, you know, card readers or, you know, things like that. That was the, the hardship there. But, you know, it wasn't hard identifying who you are and what you are. Uh, and our multi-factor has saved us on numerous occasions. Uh, specifically, a month or so ago, there was a story in the news about um, nation states attacking supercomputers trying to get into COVID research. Um, and as a result, some supercomputer facilities had to take their systems offline in Europe. That same attack was happening here, but it didn't impact Department of Energy at all because we've had multi-factor on our systems. 
So the attack vector they were using didn't work against us. Our multi-factor process protected the labs you know, from that attack vector. So no harm, you know, and we just kept moving on. What a great example, because I think for years, the government, as you probably well know, and as Bill well knows, kind of, well, it's hard to do multi-factor. It's so hard to get, you know, two-factor authentication. And then, boom, here's the perfect example of this is why you need it and this is why it, why it works. The other thing that I want to just touch upon is, is the way the threat vectors has changed. We talked about the threat surface a little. Are you seeing different and new types of threats? I know this is always ever evolving, so I don't expect you to say, no, everything's been the same. You know, <laughs> SQL Inject still very popular, but yeah. like, give me a sense of how the, the threat vectors or the threats are changing in the way you guys see them. One of the things that we've seen is, Bill mentioned it earlier, you know, the boundaryless environment. You know, that's happening here too at the, at the lab. More and more use of cloud. There's a lot of power and presence and capabilities out there. And our researchers need some of the latest and greatest stuff in order to collaborate across the world. So we've seen some vectors trying to come in through various cloud aspects. We're reliant and you know, with other people. So we've seen things where some of our third parties are getting attacked and they're letting us know, hey, you know, we've been attacked or you know, we found some issues. And because of, you know, the way we work with them, it, they can't get a foothold in here. So you're, you're seeing a different, a totally different vector where in the past it was like you said, it was, oh, I'm going to go do a cross-site scripting or buffer overflow to try to get into a facility or things like that. So that's happening always. The big thing we're seeing now too is there's a big change from you know an aggressive attack to the, to the phishing email. Unfortunately, humans are trained to to click. That's just the nature of the internet and our connectivity. So we've been a lot more diligent in watching what's going on from emails coming in to links being connected. Um, our phishing program is very active and we're constantly fishing our own staff and uh, working to improve that and educating them. Uh, it's gotten to the point that people are now even in you know, our own emails are like, is this legitimate? You know, I don't know this person. We're like, yeah, that's, that's from, you know, so-and-so over in HR, you know, or, you know, things like that. So you know, we've got our staff, I don't want to say paranoid, but very aware of what's going on. The other thing I wanted to say too, real quick, in regards to how COVID has changed things, is people are working from home now. And in the past, when you were home, or at work, I mean, you tended to do work at work and your personal stuff with smartphones, you would do it on your smartphone and things like that. And what we're seeing now, and the SOC has, has actually brought this to light, is, and because we're watching everything, unfortunately, we see people occasionally blending work and home stuff because that the delineation of an office and the couch is gone. So we're seeing, you know, we see things like, oh, wait a minute, someone's brought, you know, a streaming music or a streaming video site up. And, you know, that may just be running in the background as noise, but they're doing that on their work computer where when they were at work, they didn't do that because of one, they know I'm at work, I shouldn't be doing it. Someone may walk in and actually see me you know, streaming a video or streaming a soccer game or something online, not that there's any sports on it. But you know, we're seeing the blending of that. So we're very conscious of watching that behavior because we've seen and heard through some of the feeds that the adversaries and the nation states are trying to go after people through streaming services. 
oh, you need to renew your account. Well, people don't think about it, you know, and they accidentally click it, you know, because they're on their work computer, but they're thinking, you know, they've lost the boundary of home and work, and lo and behold, they're getting owned because of it. Kevin, uh, this is Bill. I, I think that's spot on. I mean, when we're chatting with different agencies and GovCon partners, I mean, that the battlefield, as we always refer to it, is is the the users and the endpoints, right? And it's all changed. And you know, our our the resilience that our our user community has to have is is unprecedented because they have to be right every single time. They have to make sure that that Bank of America email, even if they do bank with Bank of America, is from the Bank of America, right? Where an adversary and attacker only has to be right once. Uh, and the volume in which they are putting these threats out, I mean. They have the ability to hide some of these things in plain sight, uh, and it just makes it much, much tougher for our users uh, to not be compromised. And Canley, that's one of the reasons that we see this managed, you know, what was managed security services evolving into this managed threat detection response, as the analysts now call it, um, because people can't do this on their own. They need help just because of the sheer volume and the sophistication of what's taking place. Bill, you mentioned that a couple of times, managed threat detection. Let's go ahead and go down that path a little bit. Why don't you start, Bill, by defining what that really means? I mean, it sounds easy enough. Someone else will manage my SOC, maybe, or someone will manage my my threat detection, but but go a little deeper for me. It's all being driven by, can we, you know, SOC modernization, right? As people look at the scope of, of managed detection response, right? It's, it's really not completely drastically different than what's been done historically, but it's with a different approach. And, and it's really from a 24 by seven perspective, right? So you, you're taking all the data that you've had in the past, but it could potentially even be more data uh, with more things to run analysis against. And then you have threat information uh, that can be external or even internal, right? So that threat intel couples with it. And then Typically, you're going to have a, a platform or a portal, as we call it, a trust wave to where that data all is going to live. So it gives you the ability or a team's ability to co-manage or manage an environment to where you're doing the monitoring and the detection and then really the analysis and most importantly, the containment or, or the eradication of, of a threat really in real time. And then the underbelly of all that is proactive automation. So you have senior qualified high fidelity threat hunters that are living in this environment. So they're no longer looking for an alarm to go off. They're looking for the things that are about to make an alarm go off, right? So this has brought a, a new level of maturity to the SOC. And there's organizations, you know, Kevin referenced earlier in the discussion about not everybody has the the budget or even the the, the talent or the resources to run 24 by 7 all the time at the highest fidelity as they do from, you know, let's say 8 to 5. With a managed threat detection response partner, you get that extra lift, if you will. So you do have that, you know, modernized, remotely delivered 24 by 7 SOC outcome that gives you the ability to take advantage of all the next generation things, whether that's normalization and consolidation of data, a single platform or portal to interact with, um, and then candidly giving analysts who may have had to take five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour to go collect data, to go do research, you hand all that information to them in seconds so that they're empowered to make a risk decision in real time. That's powerful, right? And that's really what managed threat detection response has brought to the table, which is a huge, huge increase in productivity and efficiencies and cost savings over the legacy managed security service or just the legacy SOC that didn't have access to that external global 
uh, level of intelligence and automation. All right, Bill, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're, you say huge increase in productivity, huge increase in cost savings. Give me some data to back that up. Give me or an example of a customer who said, well, when they moved in this direction, this is what they did or got. I'll speak uh, in generalities around around the customer, and I'll talk about the, the three specific areas that we typically see them benefit from. So we talked about the GovCon example earlier, right? So this managed threat detection and response capability from a Trustway perspective has been out there for a couple of years, but it is, you know, as of just this summer of 2020, for the first time ever, and the first managed threat detection and response solution available on GovCloud, right? So there's additional investments being made to ensure that it is a USI's only platform that lives and breathes in GovCloud with a higher level of fidelity and controls so that people can realize uh, these type of uh, increases in productivity, cost savings, and efficiency. So we just did a pretty significant project with one of the, um, the federal systems integrators to where they had challenges in a couple areas. One, they didn't have the budget to staff an entire SOC. The people that they did have were in some cases, not not bad people or unskilled cyber people, but a little bit more of the legacy talent, if you will. So they they were more of a SOC analyst and you know red light green light and being able to potentially uh, escalate a threat to other senior people on the staff, which sometimes were very hard to keep with uh, such a uh, dynamic cyber workforce shortage out there. Good good talent's hard to to keep in, and then. Canly, many of them them didn't have the expertise to get additional data or intelligence into the environment to to make the SOC uh, move faster. So we've seen um, return on investments from a speed to resolution in in the factor of 10x. What could take an analyst historically, uh, I gave one example, we have some scenarios of of what we call alert enrichment, where that 15 or 20 items about that IP, what it's done in the last couple days, weeks, months, has this other AP ever talked to this IP, those type of historical data points that an analyst would have to go chase down maybe to multiple systems, multiple users, multiple owners, even potentially other operating divisions within their agency or, or, or company can now be handed to an analyst in, in seconds or minutes. So that level of increase drives the cost savings around budget, which is you know always the Achilles heel to innovation. The huge increase in, in talent because the SOC people that you have are tough to recruit and keep higher fidelity folks. And with a managed threat detection response partner, they've got those global threat operators that see data from 11 SOCs around the globe on a daily basis and senior cybersecurity threat hunters that have learned what an IOC before it even becomes an IOC, excuse me, indicator of compromise looks like. And then those guys are working, you know, with the government agency or the federal systems integrator that does have highly skilled DevOps and cybersecurity developers and architects, so they can help them make sure the APIs and integrations exist, and that candidly the the architecture or the plumbing behind the curtain all works, so they get access to it in a much faster way. And then that drives to the the final point, which is the data. A platform like this gives a SOC and the SOC's partner from a managed perspective access to the right data at the right time to be able to launch the, the proper investigation to make a informed decision around a threat. Because the last thing you want to do is impact the mission if it's not a real threat. But when you're able to you know, have alert enrichment and leverage SOAR, um, which is the security orchestration automation response, and then normalize all that data from a connectivity standpoint, um, the the impact that they have from an efficiency uh, is is significant. 
All right, Bill, once again, lots to unpack there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back in the next segment, we're going to unpack some of what you said. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, the President of Trustwave Government Solutions. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Listen to what Dr. Schertz is talking about on Tech Talk. What Epic did actually, rather than pay the 30% fee on the in-app purchases, they created a way to buy the upgrades to the game in a way that you bypass the Apple platform. And that violated the rules of service that Apple had. So Apple kicked them off. They also did it on the Google platform. So Google kicked them off. Stratford University's Tech Talk Radio, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10 on 1500 AM. Here's Susie Adams, Chief Technology Officer with Microsoft. Advancing defense and intelligence missions requires a cloud built exclusively for storing and analyzing classified data. That cloud is Azure Government Secret. With hyperscale computing capabilities that include built-in AI and machine learning, Azure Government Secret provides open source portability and interoperability in a trusted environment for the nation's most sensitive information. Breakthrough innovation, cloud-to-edge flexibility, and mission-critical security. That's Azure Government Secret. Visit azure.com gov. The latest on Naval Academy Athletics is as close as your computer, thanks to Navy's official website, navysports.com. You can get all the information you need on all varsity and club teams and the midshipman student athletes. Make sure you log on today. Navy Kids Shipman Club members receive exclusive benefits, fun activities, and Navy sports content throughout the year. And did we mention it's free? Join today. Visit NavySports.com for more information. I'm not up early for work. I'm awake for my favorite girl. This is the life I pictured after retiring from the federal government. I want to stay healthy for more days like this, so I picked an Aetna health plan that takes a total approach to my health. It's just for federal retirees. It fits my budget with low premiums and low out-of-pocket costs. I can even get help with some out-of-pocket expenses. I've got other things to spend my money on. Grandpa! To learn more or chat live online, visit AetnaFeds.com radio. Julia owed the IRS thousands. I was paralyzed with fear. Then I heard a commercial for Optima Tax Relief. Optima Tax Relief is the leading tax resolution firm. A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and experts in the Fresh Start Initiative. Optima Tax Relief settled my IRS tax bill. Call Optima now for a free consultation. It was amazing. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, President of Trustwave Government Solutions. Now, Kevin, before break, Bill just laid us down with a ton of good information about managed threat detection. I learned a lot from it, but now I'm going to bring it over to you and say, is this something you guys are starting to consider? Where does this concept of managed threat detection kind of play into your current and future view of cybersecurity. Started looking at a managed threat detection and response capability at the lab. Our SOC analyst, our high fidelity use Bill's term, SOC analyst, our you know, core hours and things like that. And then you know we, we move things off to people to watch certain things. We don't have what I would call the analyst who can see an anomalous behavior 24 seven and a new or different anomalous behavior 24 seven and we realize we can't keep pace. So that's one of the reasons we're looking at this is they've got those, those skilled people 24 seven watching. 
the other thing too is as things are progressing, you know, with the complexity of cyber and cybersecurity and attacks and attack vectors changing, you know, our folks are going to address the things they're familiar with or common with. I think I heard Bill say, or maybe it was one of your questions in regards to, you know, do you look just for X? And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, you look for what you know. And going to a managed threat detection response type capability, those folks are seeing everything. So they have a global perspective. They can see what's going on. Um, you know, we may not realize that an attack here is something that has been going on in banking for a while and they're just repurposing it or, you know, the, the signature or the behavior of it and coming after our government entity. So we're looking at it a lot in, re in that respect. The other thing too is they've already done a lot of the automation. You know, we've got to build the automation as we go, as we learn, as we see. This is kind of like a plug and play type of scenario where They've already got it, you know, they did it someplace else and they just throw it over the fence into our environment. And, and then it's, we're covered, it's good. So they're looking at the whole internet landscape. So I think that's the big thing that we're doing, one of the big things. You know, they may already have seen, you know, what we call an IOC, an indicator of compromise, and they can head it off before it even hits us. You know, they've already got the tools in place and go, well, this behavior does that. Oh, wait a minute, it's, we see that behavior at Oak Ridge, knock it off, you know, they can kill it and, and you know, before it even affects us. And we may not have noticed that behavior because it's not something we're familiar with. So there's a lot of, a lot of advantages to going to that. Let me jump in real quick, Kevin, because one of the things that occurs to me as you kind of went through this is there's already a fair amount of sharing going on across the federal government. And I know Oak Ridge right. National Lab and, and, and you probably share with Energy Department headquarters. I think they have the, the JSOC maybe. And then there's also probably sharing among labs and then across agencies. So this kind of adds that next level because of being able to get presented it well. If something hits the banking sector, you may not know that. But because of having that managed threat detection, they're going to see it from a global perspective. That's that to me sounds like the biggest benefit that you guys are, are, are you know eventually could 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 take advantage of. Absolutely, I mean we do work closely with headquarters and the other DOE facilities, and we are constantly sharing information and everything flows back and forth between us. Plus, you know we 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 all have our back channels that the, all the CISOs talk on, and you know our tech and our SOC guys and gals talk on and things like that. But again, it's we look and see what we're used to. An MTDR will bring in something that we don't know. We're gonna bring in the unknown and cover that 1%. Um, in my previous life, I was uh, in charge of a penetration testing group, and we used to break into the government and other facilities, critical infrastructure and things like that. And you know, we only had to find one hole, one vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You know, With this, I've gotta defend against all the aspects. And an MTDR brings that wider net that that I see as an advantage being a former pen tester. You know, plus I'm a retired Air Force flight colonel and I was in charge of a cyber warfare squadron previously. So I have a you know, even another more perverse, if you want to call it that, perspective on cyber. I want to go back to something Bill said as well, which is the data piece. I think we got to talk about data in this discussion. And and I know we brought up data lakes and I enjoyed the the next analogy of data puddles. Kevin, talk a little bit about how you guys currently are dealing with that data challenge. I mean, again, so much data, there's only so many ways to deal with it. And we'll move into something like managed threat detection. How's that going to help you with that big challenge? So data is everything and, and we collect a lot of it whether it be internal or through threat feeds and everything's like that. 
data is key for us to figure out what the threat is. Uh, a managed threat detection can connect and tie other data in from a different perspective. So, you know, we look at that as an advantage. I look at it this way. We play chess in two dimensions and bringing in a managed threat detection response team actually brings in the threat and allows you to play chess in multiple dimensions, not only just from you know, left, right, north, south, but also from time. Bill mentioned that he can see things on the other side of the globe you know, before things happen. And I look at that as one of the things that's key. You know, if someone's seeing something happening here or, you know, I mean, somewhere else in the world and they can watch it, you know, or already set up protections to stop it or alert on it, you know, that's good. So I look at these, these things, especially with their analysis, being able to see the future. And so I look at that as the key to helping us stay ahead of it and, and everything in that respect. In, in so many ways, the, this idea of cybersecurity is always about trying to stay ahead of it. It's, it's always the ultimate goal is to be more proactive and less reactive. And it sounds like this is one of those things. It's, it's definitely all about being a proactive. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, finish up our conversation. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, President of Trustwave Government Solutions. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Chief Information Security Officer, and Bill Rucker, the President of Trustwave Government Solutions. Bill, bring, come back to the conversation here for a second because I, I want to take a half a step maybe to the side. At the very beginning, I talked about OMB had set a deadline of uh, you know September about SOC maturity plans. Is this managed threat detection and again, we haven't really seen those plans. We're not sure what they look like. But when you talk to government customers, are they starting to talk about, well, we really need to move toward this managed threat detection concept, or at least the more, the less reactive, more proactive mode? I mean, we all say that, but is it really starting to, to, to sink in? Is that what you're seeing in, in, a, in a different way, whether through RFPs and RFIs or just in, in plans? I think it's very much in plans, right? This is the managed threat detection response space is drastically different than what was traditionally called a managed service, right? It's, it's no longer a, a room that you go in off of a hallway of a government agency that has, you know, 10 to 20 to 50 people looking at screens that are providing some level of service or an external, um, you know, telecom provider that's watching everything up to the edge, but that's where they stop. Um, this innovation, right, from, from the SOC um, maturity and, and modernization is going to candidly force the federal government to look beyond the edge, right? And candidly, the, the hybrid models that exist and things they've already embraced, right? But bringing this to GovCloud gives them the ability now to leverage that hybrid model. And, and it's no longer, you know, especially in the COVID environment, it's no longer people sitting in a chair inside the agency they can be anywhere and, and think about that cost savings, right? So you have access to great people now with, with new capabilities that you absolutely require to run the next generation security operations center. Those people can, can now be recruited in, in areas outside of where your agency exists, right? Or DC Metro or, or places where um, you have better cost advantages, but still highly skilled cyber resources that have, that have uh, moved back home after university or, or college. One of the reasons why maybe this concept is starting to gain some traction because of that mixed environment, because not everything is now at your data center. And, and as agencies move more and more data systems to the cloud, and again, it could be a gov cloud or it could be a commercial cloud, they, they need something to kind of 
bring all that data together. That seems what I'm hearing from you, Bill. Absolutely. The government partners that we have and, and even the industry partners that, that TrustWave has, I mean, the overall security industry has done a really good job um, of improving the technologies that are out there to help meet the mission, right? And, and help uh, defend the networks better, right? Identify threats faster, you know, less false positives than we used to see in the past where that was a, you know, a big issue. But because there's so many disparate tools and, and so many disparate interfaces of those tools and now multi-type of environments, right? Whether it's, it's on-prem or hybrid, there is no unification platforms that truly take it to the next level from a managed threat detection standpoint. So having that, for lack of a, of a better analogy, that single pane of glass to view all your data uh, and allow you to take advantage of all the security tools that you've, you've invested in and, and be able to put those coupled with that threat data into one platform and standardize it so that your tools and your systems, especially the, the data, can all be realized through a single interface. That allows you then, and from an agency at the, the highest level, from maybe the headquarters SOC down to components or uh, operating divisions that may have mini SOCs or hybrid SOCs that feed headquarters, or even if you're receiving it from a shared service provider, you may have some responsibilities for some accountability of cyber inside your environment. When you have a single platform that multiple layers in that can leverage, that's appropriate access control so that I can see something and through something we call a traffic light protocol, I can enable my managed partner or even my my higher up agency people to take action. Like, hey, this is this is green, go for it, isolate the host. You know, this is a known a known issue, or hey, I'm not sure, I'm gonna go caution and yellow, but I need support from headquarters and from you to give me some more data and intelligence. Or red, hey, do nothing. We know what this is. You know, we'll 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 list it as a as an anomaly, or excuse me, as a whitelist scenario, and then we'll come back with threat hunters to make sure that we truly should have done that later on. So I think it all rolls down to some of those capabilities that can we haven't existed in the past, and it will enable those to be be done at a at a much more cost efficient basis. From a cloud perspective, how much is Oak Ridge already in the cloud, and what does that add? How much complexity does that add for your SOC? We're definitely into it. And, you know, sometimes we're into it being dragged, kicking and screaming because our, a lot of our scientists like to get there really yesterday. And nothing in security, especially in the government, moves that fast. But there's quite a bit of it going in the cloud. I mean, we, we look at it from the standpoint of, you know, their scale. Bill mentioned cloud isn't always cheaper, but it allows you to stand things up. It allows you to collaborate better. You know, our researchers can exchange data and validate their research very quickly in the cloud through you know, the various repositories that are out there. But we're in it heavily and we're trying to watch all that's going on. And being able to see that has definitely added a level of complexity for our SOC and seeing what's going on. And uh, we were shocked at the amount that was going on out there, the amount of data. We've added some new tools that are telling us what's going on and our management is like, I didn't realize all that was going on. And we're like, oh yeah, and this is what we're doing. So, and with the cloud, it's more about the information and watching it and where it's going and how it's being used. It's definitely created a level of complexity and being able to see it is going to be very important. Any, anytime we talk about cloud and data, the, this idea of workforce comes up. It's going to require, you know, basically people to think differently, look differently, understand differently. When you talk about managed threat detection, what's the change or what's the challenge for the workforce and, and what, kind of people do you need from a government perspective to take part in managed threat detection or to 
manage the managed threat detection, if you will. One thing I look at this is that um, with an MTDR, I look at this as a force multiplier um, and also a partnership in a sense of, you know, I've got experts who can see the globe and can help us respond, but they can also take uh, through their experience and things like that, they can take a lot of load off our current SOC and it take care of some of you know, the easy things that they're already aware of um, and allow our SOC to become more refocused uh, maybe in regards to threat hunting or even learn from you know the staff in an MTDR because um, it's it's a partnership so there's going to be an exchange and you asked Bill earlier about you know finances or money when he said it can be a, a, a savior in some respects but we did a little bit of a an analysis and let's just say my average sock person costs 150,000 a year if I can repurpose you know four or five of those be doing other things, you know, whether it be threat hunting or something else, that's 600 to 750,000 that I can use for an MT, MTDR. So I get economy of scale, I get 24-7 service, I get fresh current people, you know, that are, you know, knowing what's going on. I also get the latest tech. So it's a win in that respect, and it's a partnership. So I see it as a big win, you know, going to an MTDR at some point. On that note, I'm going to say thank you to both my guests. Kevin Kerr, the Energy Department's Oak Ridge National Laboratories Chief Information Security Officer. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. And Bill Rucker is the President of Trustway of Government Solutions. Bill, thank you as well. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.